Samuel. You guys grab your Bibles if you would, turn to the book of Mark chapter 5. And then also I'd like you to put a finger in Isaiah 65 for future reference or paper or pen, whatever you, whatever you like. I have been uh, fighting off kind of a sinus infection now for a little while. It, Sounds like I'm not the only one that's been dealing with that. Some of you guys, too, have been dealing with that little crud that's been going around. Um, I think I have officially now become an Oregonian because I used a neti pot over the last week. Um, if I was not an Oregonian before, I now have a card. I'm in. And uh, it's good stuff. You just don't want anybody to see you doing it. You know what I mean? But yesterday, I was doing a lot of work out in the hedges, and there was like this mist of yellow just floating around the whole time. And now it's just back up again. I guess that's allergies more than sinus infection, but um, so excuse me if I sound nasally. Um, I hopefully God's word and his truth will go forth regardless of our crud. Amen. <coughs> um, before we get started too, I want to announce um, tomorrow at noon, there's going to be a, uh, a, a prayer service, kind of a valley-wide prayer gathering, if you will, at Medford First Naz Church, you know, the one up on the hill, up off McAndrews. Um, gotten to know their new pastor, Pastor Dale, pretty well, and uh, he's asked me to help lead that along with Pastor Barnabas Sprinkle from over at Westminster Presbyterian, also a friend of mine, and um, we're just going to take an opportunity tomorrow. Tomorrow's actually the National Day of Prayer, and so uh, we're going to be getting together from noon to one tomorrow and just uh, um, taking an opportunity to pray for our churches. Um, this, the section of the prayer that I'm leading is one uh, with regards to evangelism, praying for the lost. Um, just want to encourage you guys, maybe your lunch hour, you just want to take a, take a day to say, you know what, I'm going to, uh, you know, I mean, eat in the car, or fast, whatever that is, but, but cruise over and join us for a time of just worship and prayer. The whole Heritage staff's going to go over. It's going to be a, a good time just to pray and also a great opportunity for us to, to come together with another church that we're friends with here in Valley. So that's tomorrow at noon. Um, would love to see some of you guys there. Um, we're in Mark chapter 5. We're going to just do verses 1 through 20 tonight. Let's get started. God, I just pray that you would be honored and glorified by everything that is said here tonight. I pray, God, that your spirit would move in this place, Lord, that you would be our teacher, our guide. God, you would awaken our eyes and our spirits to the truths of your scripture. And that, God, you would then, by your spirit, you empower those very truths, those very words in our lives as we leave this place, Lord. May we not just come here to gain some sort of knowledge that might puff man up, but instead, God, may we come here to receive your living word that it might produce fruit in our lives and bring, Lord, your kingdom to bear on the world around us. So I just pray your blessing on these things, Lord, and as always, Father, I just pray in accordance with your psalms that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O oh, my King and my Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 1, Mark chapter 5. And they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat immediately, there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. And he lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with chains. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart. Then he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran 
and fell down before him. Well, it's been a really long night. The, the last time that I taught you guys in Mark chapter 4, I talked about the fact that it had been a really long day in the ministry of Jesus. And then when Sam led us through the last part of chapter 4, the last time that we were able to gather here in the book of Mark, he took us through the story where the disciples and Jesus get in the boat on one side of the Sea of Galilee, and overnight they make their way across, and that's when the storm comes. You guys know the story. Jesus is asleep in the boat, but this incredible storm comes and threatens to overtake the ship. They wake Jesus up and even say, don't you even care that we're dying over here? Come on, are you really going to sleep through this? And then Jesus, as you know, comes up to the bow of the boat and says, uh, I was going to quote the Leonardo line, but that's just cheesy. I won't do that. Jesus comes up into the boat and he, he calms, literally calms the storm. Have you guys ever seen that painting? Some of you guys seen the painting of Jesus? Um, it's, it's a pretty well-known one, I think, that is just amazing. And you can still see the storm clouds in the distance and Jesus standing in the boat with his arms out, and yet the water is just glass, just absolute glass. I've always found it to be a really powerful picture. It always comes to mind when I think of that story. So they just had a stressful night. They thought they were going to die. Then they see Jesus calm the storm. They're even thinking, what manner of man is this, that even the winds would obey him? This is, there's something going on. This is unbelievable. And so no doubt they didn't just roll over and go right to sleep right after that thing happened. It's been a long night for the game. And so then they come across the shore to the other side. And ministry instantly kicks in once again. It says here, as they were in the Gerasenes, that there was a man of an unclean spirit that comes. We, those of you with the King James or the King James backgrounds would refer to him as the demoniac of the Gadarenes, maybe we are aware of, different names for different areas of that region. But this is a man that has been completely possessed. And so there's interesting parallels here. So the night before, you have this ocean that is just completely tossed in great torment because of the winds. And now we see a man who is equally tossed, equally torn, equally disheveled as these demons are absolutely torturing this guy. His tattered clothing seems to be a, a picture, if you will, about the fact that his life is literally hanging on by shreds. Um, there's a word used, says to subdue him. The word there is damazo, which is used for the word, it's the word for taming, as if you were trying to tame a wild animal. The people of this village have tried everything to get this guy under control. He's acted like an animal and they've treated him like an animal, even going so far as to try to chain this guy up. But even supernaturally, he's able to just break these fetters away. They can't control him. He's, so what they've done is, well, we can't control him, we can't deal with this, so they've banished him now to live on the outskirts of town. If you know anything about Jewish culture, you know that they're not going to plant the cemetery right in the middle of the city. Um, we had some visitors in town this week, and, and he talked about the fact how he loves to be able to just go and walk through cemeteries and just see the history there and just kind of have quiet walks through them. So, so he went over to Jacksonville while he was in town this weekend and was just amazed walking through those old places. He didn't do that in Jewish culture. That would have been an uh, unclean place. And so that's where they've banished this unclean man. We'll just kick him out of here. He's away from family. He's away from society. He's away from us. Just go out there. And they kick him to a place to where now he's not going to wake the, this manner of sleep with his noise and with his antics. That's this guy's life. Now, I don't want you, before we go any further, I don't want us to miss the heart of what's going on here. Because this story um, is probably the most suspenseful and the most intriguing story of confrontation between 
the demons or between that demonic world and Jesus Christ as there is anywhere in the Bible. It's probably the most interesting and nuanced confrontation between Jesus and demons and the one that might come to most people's mind most readily when we think about this. Um, and, and it's good. We need to understand that. The world of the demonic is a real place. There's, there's a line from a movie in the 90s that said the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was getting the world to believe that he didn't exist. So there's a danger in us going ignoring the reality of the demonic. Scriptures say we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against what? Principalities and powers. There are very real. The demonic world is absolutely real. It's very real. But there can also be a danger in going too far. If, if the pendulum on this end is it's dangerous for us to assume that demons don't exist, well, there, there's another end over here that can be equally dangerous, and that's where we put too much focus on the world of the demonic. Um, there's stories of people that you can read who have gotten so caught up in trying to study, maybe even with noble in desires and noble intent from the first end, but, but get so caught up in sort of the darkness of this demonic world there that it, you can become too fixated on it. And so while there's benefit in learning this story, that the important thing to understand here, and really the overall thing that, that causes people to wonder is the reality of this. This story is about a man who desperately needs to be delivered and about the outside force that comes in and is able to do it. Don't miss that part of the story. It's not just a showdown between Satan and evil. It's about a merciful and loving God who is encountered by someone whose life is an absolute mess. Absolute mess. And this guy has completely been kicked out to the outside, and yet there's this Savior that's there to deliver. And the, re the reason this is important for us to remember and make sure that that's our key, this isn't just some study in demonology, but that this is a story about a Savior who delivers, is because, look, you don't have to be completely possessed and this disheveled to be demonized. Understand this. The book of James says, for example, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Being demonized, that word literally means being affected by, to be tempted by. It doesn't have to be a full-on like possession as you would see here, but it means afflicted or, or maybe controlled. And how many of us have seen people over and over and over through our lives or have been in seasons ourselves where we were absolutely afflicted, enslaved to sin? Feeling chained up but with no power to break away from the chains of sin that hold us in those moments. That's important for us to understand because then this is that passage that says with, with barely a flick of the wrist, the demons go running. No matter how big, no matter how many they be, but I'm giving away a later point. Let's move forward. So Jesus comes here, verse 7, it says, he sees him, he falls down before Jesus and crying out with a loud voice, which actually is better translated, that he falls down before Jesus and there's this sort of um, guttural or, or animal-like howl that comes out of this man before. I mean, this guy literally has been at night howling out as if he's some sort of animal, and then maybe even moments of clarity, understanding what's plaguing him, is taking rocks and cutting at himself and beating himself, trying to get this demon out of him. And now Jesus is there. And there's this really interesting thing that happens because so many times for us, our challenge is to get people to understand who Jesus is. But that is never a problem for demons. They know who Jesus is the moment they see him. 
And so Jesus comes, he sees them, and it says the demons rush forward and they cry out. There's this roar, if you will, that comes out of them. And then they cry out, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Now, the reason demons automatically recognize Jesus is because, for one thing, they, they know. But for another thing, he's a threat to them. And they're aware of this. And, but th- there's something interesting that happens here that doesn't happen in some of these other accounts. These demons, if you will, seem to be aggressive. Like instead of retreating in horror from Jesus, they're rushing upon him and then falling down at his feet. But you, you could look at that, oh, well, they're just, they know he's the Lord, so they're falling down at his feet in mercy. But then there's something actually interesting that happens in here, that they're sort of playing with Jesus, most people believe. You see, there were a lot of practices in this day regarding demons and the exorcism of demons. It was something that was part of the Jewish code, part of Jewish religion. It was something that was not all that uncommon or unheard of. Um, At least it was part of their understanding, part of their culture. And there were different tricks, if you will. If if the exorcists had a bag of tricks to use upon demons, this demon is using them because it was widely believed within the culture at that time and in many places, even still today, that to know the name of of the demon that you're dealing with or the person that you're dealing with gives you a certain degree of authority and power over them. Still believed in many cases to this day. And so this demon comes and invokes the name of Jesus as they're talking to him, not in a form of worship, but almost as if are you reaching into their the own exorcist bag of tricks to try to control Jesus and say, do not torment us is their command. Invoking Jesus's name as if to say, we've got your number, Don't torment us, which is an absolutely amazing thing to think about because what have they been doing to this guy for how long? They've been tormenting him beyond belief. But now judgment's coming and they're demanding the mercy upon them that they would not allow on others. Well, that's a whole other sermon, but we don't have time for that today. So this is what they're dealing with. In verse 9, and Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. It seems again that he's being defiant with Jesus, or they, I should say, are being defiant with Jesus. What's your name? Instead of giving a name, they they give a description. Our name is Legion, for we are many. It's almost as if first he's trying to exercise control over Jesus by saying, I've got your name, this is who you are. And then second, he's trying to intimidate, there's many of us, there's a bunch of us here. Now, don't cast us out. But, of course, he has no shot whatsoever and instantly realizes he's begging for mercy. And in particular, this word legion is one that would have instilled a great amount of respect and fear amongst the Jewish people. Many of you guys know, you've heard this before, that a legion was a Roman regiment who could have upwards of 6,000, anywhere up to 10,000, depending on which historian's account you believe, uh, of soldiers, as well as up to about 120 horsemen or chariots. And so if you're a small, you got to remember, this isn't like today. You're talking about small, medieval culture, um, ancient, actually, culture, uh, unarmed, not a ton of weapons around the place, under Roman control, and this is an army, if you will, that would come in of thousands. This is an intimidating phrase to say. So this is what they say to Jesus, but it says in verse 11, Now a herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs lest we enter. 
So the demons even already realize this is hopeless. The, the name thing didn't work. Scratch that out. Legion, that's not going to work either. Scratch that out. Pigs, <laughs> we'll try that. Let's try pigs. <laughs> Will you just cast us over there? A- ancient cultures also believe that demons did not inhabit vacuums. They didn't just wander around because their desire was to possess, to control, to own. And so if this was the case, they're saying, well, then cast us into these pigs over here to the side. And so verse 13, so he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned into the sea. So think about this. The nuances of the Greek language actually paint a picture that that our English translations don't properly get across. It it speaks about one by one. So so here's what happens. Here's this man who's tossed and torn and, and on the edge of death, it would seem, scarred, beaten, much like the very ocean Jesus calmed the night before. And so Jesus now casts the demons out of this guy, and he goes into a herd of pigs. And what they do is, one by one, Storm off, single file, if you will, one by one, 2,000 of them into the very ocean that Jesus has just demonstrated his authority over. And that very ocean becomes the mechanism by which Jesus defeats the enemy there. It's really quite brilliant if you think about it. If you're writing a novel and looking for irony and you're looking for these things, man, God is creative. And he's really good at what he does. This is brilliant. And not only does it just happen to be pigs, you're talking about 2,000 pigs in Jewish territory? Why would they have 2,000 pigs in that area anyway? A lot of different beliefs on that. A lot of people believe, well, it's just a pagan culture. It's an area known as the Decapolis, as we're going to see in just a little while, which were 10 cities that were under Greek Uh, protection, if you will. They had sort of a treaty there in that area. So some would say, well, they're invoking and they've gotten involved in the kind of Greek pagan worship that we know about from studying 1 Corinthians. We see what's going on up in Corinth and in Greece. And animal sacrifices were often used for that type of worship. And so many people believe to have a herd of this size in that area, it had to be some sort of either communal herd that was dedicated to pagan worship at that time or one that was literally marketed for that very use. So these animals would be sold for pagan worship. The meat would be then put on the barbecue, if you will, at the altar. And then you guys know the stories from 1 Corinthians about demon meat. Remember the demon meat sermons? We talked about all that. That this is what we're talking about here. In areas that shouldn't have anything to do with that. Territory that God had marked out for the people of Israel long ago and told them this is an unclean animal. Animals that were used for pagan sacrifices even then. And he told the people of Israel, you're going to be different. You're not going to have anything to do with that. And so now here we are in this area. you got demons patrolling the shorelines. And you got a whole herd of pigs that are right there. And so Jesus casts the demon into the pigs. They run one by one, if you will, and run off into the ocean. Now, now to the classic Jewish, especially anyone with any Jewish historical or religious emphasis, this story would invoke glee in them. I mean, not only are the pigs off to hog heaven, thank you very much, also... The demons have been cast off into judgment, but there's so much more that a Jewish person sitting there hearing this story would find that would resonate within them. So so here's just a couple other things to think about. Pigs also, in that culture, at that time, would call up to them references of a man you may have heard of named Antiochus Epiphanes. You remember this guy? 
This guy in the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament is the Greek. Now keep in mind, this is the area that has a, 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 a protection uh, treaty, if you will, with the Greek people, with Greek soldiers. That's the Decapolis. That's this area. And so Antiochus Epiphanes was a Greek king who came and invaded Israel, destroyed the cities, came into the Jewish temple and completely desecrated it by offering what on the altar? A pig. So to hear that in a Greek-controlled or Greek-protected area that these pigs have been destroyed would have just been like, (laughs) to the Jewish person, they would have found great delight in something like that. In addition... The Roman legions that came into Jerusalem and Masada when Rome then eventually took over and established control over the Jewish area, the Roman legions, same word, legion, key word for this teaching, when those Roman legions came in, they carried with them banners and shields that would have upon them standards or emblems. In America, our standard might be the star on some things, or maybe it's the eagle on the others. Take a wild guess what the standard was for the Roman army that came in and kicked the Greeks out and took control of the area? It was a wild boar. It was a pig. And so they would look at this. Here's the king of the Jews, if you will, coming in and evicting even them. It's it's not coincidental that pigs are involved in this story. And so here we have this, this amazing representation where though this man has been so afflicted by these demons, they can't even chain him down, they can't even restrict him, they can't even control him, and with barely a flick of the wrist, Jesus says, be gone, and they're destroyed. Now here's something interesting. Jesus is able to deliver this man, to set him free, despite the fact that he's plagued by a legion of armies. And we say that the emphasis of this text really that we should take away from is the fact that Jesus is the one who delivers those in bondage. Remember the teaching that he gives in Isaiah 61 that he applies to himself when he's there? And he says, I've come to set free the brokenhearted, to set the captives free. So how did Jesus do that? Well, he hung on the cross and he was mocked. And people said, if you're the son of God, call down legions of angels. He says, my father, if I were to say... 10 or 12 legions of angels would come, and yet Jesus resisted that same level of deliverance for himself, resisted that same manner of command for himself, and yet here we see the grace and mercy of an incredibly powerful, but an incredibly kind king to a man who so desperately, desperately needs it. This should bring us great hope. Because I wonder if there's anybody in here that feels chained up by sin. I wonder if there's anybody even in this very room that feels afflicted, if you will, that feels like maybe there's that thing that you've just wrestled with your whole life and you can just never seem to forget it. I mean, pornography's the big one today, right? That's the one that seems to get the most news. We've even seen in recent church news throughout the nation the devastating effects of some of that. You ever feel like that thing that you're dealing with, pornography, lust, greed, desire of money, anxiety, you worry and fear, and then you go, no, I'm going to give it to the Lord, and then you take it back, and then you go, oh, I'm going to give it to the Lord, and then you take it back. Anger, unforgiveness, like, do you ever feel like that thing around your wrist will never go away? It is so important to remember 
that the demons that afflict us have absolutely nothing on the power of the Savior that has us. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And I I just want to remind you of that because I've talked to people before where you can get into this mode where you're struggling with sin over and over and over and over through life. Addictions, things like that, and you feel like, I will never get on top of this thing. But you've got to remember, you may never be able to get out of it, but you have a Savior that can. And it's important for us to remember how incredibly powerful our God is. I mean, Jesus barely does anything. You notice this? Like we have no, there's no like, it's just like, all right, go. Done. Pig, pig, pig's fly in the ocean. It's not funny. But anyway, our Savior is so incredibly powerful. So can I just by way of reminder tell you tonight, if you're feeling trapped, if you're like, if you're right now going, yeah, I, I know exactly what I need. It's this. It's this in my life, and I don't know how to deal with it. Let me encourage you tonight to seek the Son of God. Seek Jesus Christ, the Son of the Most High God. I mean, I don't know if I can use this language, but but invoke this. Come to God and say, God, I need this in my life. I need to be set free because he tells us quite clearly when he quotes Isaiah that this is why I came. This is why I've come, to set captives free. There is nothing, there is no power on earth, there is no sin that can have dominion or stronghold over us. Jesus Christ is more powerful than them all. That's a good reminder for us to have. Amen? Amen? So moving forward, verse 14. So he cast this, the pigs go off the cliff, demons are gone, pigs are dead, word spreads. Verse 14. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. So word gets out, and we got to go see what happened. I just heard there was a commotion in the countryside. They go there and they see this guy who now sits as calm as the ocean that Jesus has just stilled the night before. And this is what they're afraid of. This is unbelievable. They, they weren't afraid of the man who's howling and gashing himself with rocks and breaking chains. Nope. They come in, and the fact that they have now seen he changed, they see that, and this is what gives them great fear. And so what they end up doing is they end up, instead of giving him the key to the city, look what he's done, look how he has solved this, they give him the boot. And, and this man who has been now relegated out to the outskirts of the city is treated with less harshness than Jesus Christ himself, who's now kicked back across the lake. I mean, they're literally treating Jesus Christ in a worse way with more harshness than they did a man that was absolutely riddled with demons. That's the response. A lot of people can tolerate religion as long as it doesn't get in the way of their prophets. Which is one of the reasons, by the way, their reaction is one of the reasons a lot of people believe that this was closely associated to pagan worship practices at the time. And so Jesus is told to leave. They're afraid of him. And this is where we get this incredible surprise ending. We're actually almost done. This might be the shortest Wednesday night service that I've done ever. We'll see. We can always hope, right? Pray for a miracle. But this is the surprise ending, and this is just awesome. Verse 18. As he was getting in the boat... A man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, 
But he said, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Now think about this. So you're the guy. You're chained up. You're breaking him free. In moments of clarity, you're fully aware of what's going on. You've been separated from family. You're scarred and wounded and bruised and cut and alone and naked and a mess. And then Jesus shows up. And he just speaks a few words, and you have been set free. I mean, don't you know that guy was in a place where he thought this is never going to change? And, and in a society that clearly isn't holding on to much of God's word to begin with because they're holding on to pigs and whatnot, so even the very power to set him free doesn't seem to be real prevalent in the land at the time. He is alone. He is absolutely alone. And then Jesus comes and sets him free, frees him from literally thousands of demons sets him free and so now what do you do with that well you follow him don't you i mean if this is the one that saved him don't you follow him don't you want to do everything in your power i mean don't you want to give your entire life everything it's all about you from here i wouldn't even have a life if it wasn't for you i want to follow you and so we see him here sitting at jesus's feet he's in the position of a disciple at the feet of jesus and Jesus says, all right, I'm going to leave. They want us gone. I'm going to leave. And he goes to get on a boat, and the guy says, I'm coming too. I'm coming too. And Jesus says, no. That is so weird. He refuses it. And then he does what he is intentionally not done over and over and over. If you've been tracking with us through the book of Mark, you've seen this. He always does these miracles. And this is, no, don't tell anybody. Miracle, don't tell anybody. Miracle, don't tell anybody. This guy, miracle, no one on here wants Jesus and his influence. They're kicking him out of town. Here's this one guy that just, I want to be with you. And he goes, no. Now go tell everybody. It's like the exact opposite of what you would expect Jesus is going to do in this setting. It's a really intriguing thing to think about right here. But you're, keep in mind, this is a guy who's been isolated from family, isolated from friends, who's probably deepest longing in all of his heart is to be restored and be connected back with the people that we love, that he loves. And Jesus says, this is what I'm going to give you. You're going to be restored. You're going to go back with the family. Now go tell everyone that this was me. And it's what he does. Verse 20 says, he went away and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. So think about it. The people come to Jesus. This is too much. Get out of here. And they evict Jesus from the place. We will not have this man lord over us. Get out of here. And they run him out of town. And so Jesus leaves, but he leaves behind disturbing evidence of who he is and of what he has done. And it says that while they won't listen to Jesus and they've kicked him out of here, somehow they watch this guy. And it says that they marvel. That they just absolutely marvel at what's going on. You know, you know I was thinking about this story. Where's the better place for that guy to be for the kingdom of God? Because think about it. When they come to see him, they find him what? Dressed, clothed, in his right mind at the feet of Jesus. And as soon as I even thought about that, I instantly went to the, the story. When we talk about stories with regards to being at the feet of Jesus, probably the most common one that anyone would bring up would be that of Mary and Martha, right? So Jesus is in the house of Mary and Martha, and, and Mary is sitting there at Jesus' feet, 
And Martha's just running about, doing all kinds of stuff, serving, making the food, getting the drinks, doing all this kind of stuff. And she finally comes in. You're going to just leave her sitting there? Are you going you to tell her to help me? My goodness, there's a lot of people here. I need some help. And he says to her, no, she's chosen the better thing. It's a great story about how important it is that we sit at the feet of Jesus. It's the better thing. Would you guys all agree that worshiping and being at the feet of our Savior, that's a pretty good place to be, right? But it's not the only place. Because there are some that would take something like that and they would take that sort of philosophy and they would say, therefore, what we who have been delivered We who are Christians, the best thing we can do is disengage from the world around us and plant ourselves at the feet of Jesus and go nowhere else. And yet Jesus takes this guy right here whose life he just completely radically changed. He says, now go tell everybody. Tell your family. Tell your friends. There's work to do. Go. He is a disciple of Jesus. He's just getting his mission to go tell people a little bit earlier than the other 12. And they're a little slow, so we understand that. But this is what he's called to do. This this idea that we who have been saved and rescued, because again, put ourselves in this story. I mean, we are all slaves to sin. That is what the scriptures teach us. That's what the picture in the book of Exodus, which is the, the grand analogy, if you will, the salvation that Jesus offers us, is that we were totally enslaved, helpless to deliver us from sin, and yet God intervenes. And through sacrifice, through great sacrifice, he delivers us and we are set free and we become his people. We become his children. We become his prized possession. But why? When you go into the story of Exodus, doesn't he say over and over that through you the nations will be blessed? That he sets free the people of Israel so that his name might be declared everywhere. Even all of the Levitical law that says you're not going to eat pig. You're not going to live like some of these other pagan people is because you're going to be different. You are going to be a light, a city on a hill, if you will, who declares who I am to the world around you. And that's our story. That's who we are. I told you guys to go to Isaiah 65. I I want you guys to turn to Isaiah chapter 65. This is how amazing God is. God writes the commentary before he actually gets to the story. So the commentary on Mark 5 happens in Isaiah 65, and it's pretty remarkable, Isaiah 65. And while you're turning there, I want you to imagine something, okay? Imagine you're here in town, and you're blind. And you've been blind for a really long time. Maybe you've been blind since birth. You've prayed, you've had people anoint you, whatever the case may be. You've just, you're absolutely blind. No doctor ever has had any ability to help you whatsoever. And you've pretty much just resolved the fact this will be life for me. And then an ophthalmologist comes along. And he just pulls you aside. And he says, you, you're going to come with me. And he takes you into his office. And he lays you on his table. And he brings all the stuff in. And the nurses come. And he performs a procedure that you didn't even know existed. And the next thing you know, you're waking up in a room. And someone's unwrapping the bandages. And the first thing you see are the eyes of the optometrist looking at you going, How many fingers am I going to have? I don't know how to count. I was blind. But that looks like, and you're you're just blown away, right? And you're, wouldn't you, is there a number he could say, this is how much my surgery costs, that would be too much for you? Is there a number that you would say, well, it's not worth that? 
wouldn't you do anything? And yet his response to you, when you're like, what is this going to cost me? This is unbelievable. I can't believe that you just did that. His response to you is, nothing. But whenever people ask, just go, go home, go see your friends, go see them, go see your friends, and tell them, when anybody asks you, you tell them I did it. Let me ask you, would you recommend any other ophthalmologist to anyone else in the valley? Would you have any shame or embarrassment in your heart at all to tell people about the ophthalmologist that has restored your sight? Would you have any hesitation at all to in your heart say, I once was blind, but now I see, and it's because of him. We need to connect the dots. Take a look at Isaiah 65. Look what it says in verse 1. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices. A people who provoke me to my face continually, and look what he says, sacrificing in gardens, making offerings on bricks, who sit in tombs and spending the night in secret places. Do you see the picture he's painting of this man who's been wandering in these cemeteries night after night? Who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels. Because this is the story of Christianity. This is the story of this message. This is the story of the book of Romans that says, there were none who seek me, there's none who do good, not one, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but that I've come and I've been around them saying, here I am, here I am, here I am to a people that are rebellious against me. The old hymn says, this is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. This is me, this is us, this is you. The fact that, that we imprisoned to sin and in the shackles of, of the demons, if you will, destined for the very same eternity that those demons that went into those pigs did. And yet we have a gracious Savior who is immensely powerful, who interjected himself into history and also specifically into our lives and saved us. And now the role of witness becomes us. I mean, let's face it. Do we not live in a culture that is expelling Jesus left and right every chance they get? I mean, following Jesus is going to be hard on the porn industry, right? Following Jesus would be hard on the abortion industry. Following Jesus would be hard on those who, who peddle drugs and who, whatever the case may be. There's a million reasons out there, and not to mention pagan and false religions, just plain selfish pride. There's a million reasons out there for people to evict Jesus from the culture that we're in. And in so many places, that's absolutely the case. I mean, we are constantly finding, though, though I don't want to mislead you, Christianity is doing well. So don't buy into the, oh, we're dying, the church will be nowhere in 10 years. No, the church is going to be strong through persecution. It always is. But the secularization, if you will, of America is real. The middle ground is going away fast. And so Christianity is being more and more and more 
pushed into the church and said, you have room in there and nowhere else. And so we live in a culture that is kicking Jesus out, just like these people kicked Jesus out. But right now we're here still. And Jesus has said to us the same thing that he says to the man that's been delivered. Hey, go tell your friends, go tell your family, go minister to people, tell them. When people say, why are you different? And we should be different. We've got to be different. Our, our friends and family's lives depend on us being different. And when they ask, understand it, man. Why are you different? Why are you like that? Why can you still worship when bad things happen to you? H- how can you say, I don't go to porn sites? How can you be different? I, I don't understand that. Why are you like that? You go, he did this. I was blind once, and now I see. And that, that's, that's what we're called to do. And I just challenge you, man, if it was a doctor that cured us of cancer, we would sing his name from the rafters. But there's something about the culture we live in, maybe the pride we wrestle with. I actually look at it almost as just greater testimony of the truth of Jesus being who he says he is. Because if it was anything else, we would declare it. When our sports teams win, we don the cap and put the flags out and tell everyone. But then there's something that gets difficult when it comes to sharing our faith with others. But let me assure you, this is why we're here. is to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with a world that is desperate for Jesus to die. This is why we're here. So I encourage you, beg God for the power and the boldness to be able to do it. And and if you're like, I I don't know the words, I don't know what to say, I don't know, then you show the love of Christ to others and then you bring them here. You bring them to places where the gospel is declared. But I still believe that the witness of one friend to another or one family member to another will go infinitely farther than my sermon will to the average unbeliever in the congregation. I really believe that. So tell them, go see your friends. Go see your family. Let me encourage you. You are the demoniac in the garden. You are the one who has been absolutely, Satan seeks those who he can kill and destroy. That is your end until Jesus steps in and sets you free from bondage to sin. And now he's gone, but he's coming back. And in the meantime, he says, go tell your family. Go tell your friends. Be different. Look different. There should be change in your life. You should look different now than you did before. That's part of it. Sanctification is important. And when people say, why are you different? You tell them, Jesus did it. Amen? Amen. This is the call of discipleship. Let's stand and pray. Father, I thank you for this reality. That, Lord, when we read this story, it's an autobiography. It's what you've done for us. And I thank you for this reminder that you have set us free by your grace, that you have come to us, Lord. And you've said, here I am. You've revealed yourself to us through your word and by your spirit. You've set us free from bondage and slavery to sin. And now you've left us here to declare your name to the world. God, that's hard for us. Lord, for the average follower, this is a difficult thing. But Lord, we know that our friends, our family, our co-workers, their lives and their destiny hangs in the balance. And I pray, God, that you would give us the boldness by your spirit to declare your name. That you would give us, Lord, the purity that your spirit calls us to. That you would help us to live differently. 
that you would continue to deliver us from sin, no matter what it might be that has its claws in us. Would you set us free, God? And then give us the ability, Lord, to declare your name. That that we might be examples of your mercy to people around us, just as this man was an example of your power over sin. And then, Lord, we pray, come quickly. We long for the day that our faith is made sight, that we see you, God, our healer and our deliverer. But until that day, Lord, give us the ability, we pray. Lord, against our own flesh, we pray, Lord, give us the ability to be about your mission. To spend time at your feet, yes, but then, Lord, to go and share your gospel with those around us. That is our prayer, Lord. Will you help us with that? Because without your spirit, we can do nothing. So we ask these things in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you on Sunday morning.